Well, this has been a really great week, not just because our students got to go to Florida, though they had a great retreat. Thank you for praying for them. But also because uh, we got good news about our upcoming uh, building. I don't know if y'all knew this. You may have remembered that we are building a building up by the ninth grade center. And so we officially now have not only a completed building plan, but we also have the thumbs up from the city to begin site work on our property, which means that in coming weeks, yeah, in coming weeks, we'll be announcing our groundbreaking, and uh, which will be cool. You'll, of course, all be invited to roast in the sun with us uh, for that event. We're so thankful for all the people who put in hours and hours of time uh, in their planning and organization and making this happen. Thankful for all of those of you who have committed and uh, gave to this building. Really thankful for our builder and getting to work with uh, the most uh, honest and best uh, builder in Central Texas with A-Day and Associates. We're honored to work with them. Excited uh, to see this move forward. Now, the building did come in at higher than expected cost, which, you know, it's kind of like you expect that, so it shouldn't be unexpected. And so we're working through the details of that, what it would mean to reduce the cost without cutting any of the functionality of the building. And we're doing that on our end and praying that God would provide everything we need. We'd encourage any of you, especially who did not go through the process, the prayer process of until everyone hears, to go through that process. I'll be giving more details this week. Look for an email from me that will kind of map things out, but just also uh, look for an email from me kind of giving a date, hopefully in the near future of our groundbreaking. That won't be determined this week, but in uh, weeks to come, we'll have that date to you as well. And uh, it's going to be a great day. So thank you all for all that. All right. Well, hey, let's uh, go ahead and start. Uh, today is our final message in this series called the Decalogue, the Ten Words, through the Ten Commandments. And we've said this each week, but it still bears repeating. Ultimate freedom is found under God's authority. Like, amen? (laughs) Ultimate freedom is found only under God's authority. Like, do you believe that? Like, I, I believe it because, guys, I've seen the alternative. Like I grew up in a family that lived under their own authority and their lives ended in disaster. I've seen what freedom, which is actually slavery, leads to. And so I believe that ultimate freedom is found only under God's authority. I also believe it because I witnessed uh, through years, uh, I've witnessed this principle played out through years of shepherding people through the most awful consequences of living a life under their own authority. And so I know that real freedom, ultimate freedom, is found only under God's authority. Please understand this. Your story, if you choose to regard disregard God's law, your story will not end any better than theirs. It will end in disaster. I hope you believe that. But I also believe this principle because I've seen this truth play out in my own life. Like I still remember what it was like to be set free. And I never want to return to Egypt. Like I never want to go backwards. 
Like I know what the exercise of freedom under my own will turned out to look like. I know what that slavery was like and Jesus has set me free and I don't want to go backwards because God's law is the way of true freedom. God's law is the way. The only way of true satisfaction. I hope you believe that. God is not trying to rob us in any way of happiness. He's not trying to take away our satisfaction. In fact, He wants to ensure it. In Psalm 34, verse 8, it says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Do you believe that? Like, have you tasted of the goodness of the Lord? Like actually, over the last few weeks throughout this sermon, we have seen some of the goodness of the Lord because the law of God is good and holy and just. It is for us, not against us. Dr. Albert Moeller calls the Ten Commandments a symphonic whole. And what he means like that is that in the Ten Commandments, God is in a sense writing a full symphony. Like so they must be read together, heard together, understood together, studied together, delighted in together, and obeyed together. The first commandment and the tenth commandment kind of serve as bookends to complete the symphony that God has written. And in Exodus 20, God introduces His law with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before Me. And so as He goes to the point where He introduces the law to His people, He reminds them of the deliverance that He has brought. And in this first command, He is saying, let Me be all that I am for you. Like, I don't want to be your first of many. I want to be your one and only. I want to be the one and only God you come to with everything. Recognize Me for who I am and make Me front and center of your life. The first commandment, as we saw in that first week of this series, calls for our unrivaled allegiance. Like, that is the starting point. For anyone who wants to relate to God correctly, yielding to His Lordship, yielding to His control, understanding that He is God and you are not. Like God refuses to simply be at the top of your list of priorities. He demands to be front and center of your life. He doesn't want you to make Him first. He wants you to make Him only. And so that's the first commandment. And the tenth commandment, and in, in, in the tenth commandment, God kind of doubles down on that theme, right? He completes the symphony. In the final commandment, God asks his people this question Do you trust me? Do you trust me with your desires? Do you trust me with the longings of your heart? Like, do you trust me with your happiness? Do you trust me with your satisfaction? Like, do you believe that I want what is absolutely best for you? 
And do you believe and do you trust that I will provide that for you at just the right time? In Exodus 20, verse 17, God gives the final command, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. And before you think that you're doing really well with this because you've never longed for a donkey, like I haven't either. What does it mean to covet? Well, to covet simply means to desire or to delight in. But it's not really the same. To covet in a negative sense is not the same as simply having desires. Like this is not a law against having feelings or longings. Like God is not trying to turn His people into robots. He's not saying extinguish all desire. Because the problem is not desire. The problem is not that we desire things, it's that we desire the wrong things. In the wrong way, at the wrong time, and for the wrong reason. Like C.S. Lewis wrote years ago that uh, when we consider the promises of reward from the Scripture, especially those in the Gospels, he said that God doesn't consider our desires too great, too strong, but too weak. We are like half-hearted creatures fooling around with drugs and sex and drink and ambition when eternal pleasure is offered to us. We're like a child who is content in the slum to play with mud pies when he doesn't even understand the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, our, our desires are not the problem. It's that we, we are satisfied temporarily with all the wrong things. So with this final command, God forces us to look below the surface. The focus is not on what we do, but it's on what we want to do. Like coveting is a passionate longing to possess something or someone that is not ours to have. Remember, it's not a warning against wanting, but against wanting what belongs to someone else or something that God doesn't want you to have in that moment. Like you can test your own heart. Like do you ever bristle or feel uncomfortable or get a little irritated or bitter when people around you are blessed? Like when that guy in the cubicle next door to you gets the promotion? Or when your next door neighbor gets a new car? Right? Or when your brother tells you his wife is pregnant and you haven't been able to conceive? And so you begin to bristle at that. You begin to get irritated at that. You begin to think, what about me? But understand, like, coveting is not some sort of longing for equity. Like, I just want us all to be equal. If you get to have a kid, I get to have a kid. If you get a new car, I get a new car. Everybody gets a new car. It's not some virtue. Like, coveting is completely self-focused. Coveting looks at the blessing of a neighbor and says, that's not fair. That should be mine. Like, coveting is first cousins with envy and jealousy. Coveting is not saying, I sure would like to have fill in the blank. 
Coveting goes further and says, why did you get that? Are you better than me? You think you're smarter than me? Like, I want what you have. Like, I've struggled. I know all of us in this room. You have to, if you're honest, in your heart of hearts, to know that you struggled and have struggled and are struggling with coveting. Like, I remember living in Cedar Park and we bought a house that was really cute and we really loved it until the other houses started to get built and they were nicer than ours. Like, they had all the bells and whistles and ours didn't. And we had one car until I bought a 78 Toyota Celica. You know, of course, this is uh, in the 2000s, so it wasn't a new car. <laughs> and then our neighbors started moving in, and they all had brand new cars in nicer houses than us. And we thought, like, what is going wrong? Like, are we doing something wrong with our finances? Like, what is the deal here? And we envied them. And we really struggled with that. We all do that. In fact, in a sense, I think coveting turns the faucet on for every other desire. Like it starts in here. Like it starts like the idea of theft begins with, I want what they have. The idea of adultery begins with, I want who they have. Like it turns on the faucet of every other sin. Coveting is a desire that ultimately will fuel discontentment. Kevin DeYoung explains it this way. When we covet, we don't believe that God is big enough to help us are good enough to care. Guys, coveting is a theological problem. Like when we covet, we don't believe that God is big enough to help us or good enough to care. Our discontentment is an expression of how much more we think God owes us. It can seem strange that the Ten Commandments start with such lofty ideals. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And then ends with a prosaic whimper. Stop looking at that donkey. <laughs> but do you see how the two are connected? God is saying, I am the only God you need. Don't turn to Baal. Don't turn to statues. Don't turn to animals or friends or abilities either. Let nothing else capture your gaze and affections ahead of me. The tenth word from God calls us to be content. Once again, God is saying, do you trust me with your desires? With the longings of your hearts? With your wishes and dreams? Do you trust me? with your satisfaction and your happiness? Do you believe that I am for you and I want the best for you and that I will provide for you exactly what you need at just the right time? Guys, it seems such a minor thing, but contentment is discontentment is insidious. Coveting is dangerous. In Colossians 3.5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And then he says this, which is idolatry. Breaking of the second commandment. Like how is coveting idolatry? Well, Paul calls coveting idolatry because the things that we covet and long for and pine after and dream about end up controlling our lives and exercising a sense of lordship over us. 
It makes a God out of our desires. Covenant, uh, covet, uh, uh, sorry, coveting says, I can't live without this person. I can't live without this possession. I can't live without this position and God that God has yet to see fit to give to me. Like that's what coveting does. Like this commandment addresses all of us, all the good people in this room. Like when you look at the other Ten Commandments, especially the second table of the law, you know, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie in court. It's easy for us to go through that and think, check, 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 like I'm doing so well. Until we get to this that goes below the surface and looks at our heart and exposes us for who we really are. This is a command that makes all the good people, the moral people, the religious people sit up and take notice. Even the Apostle Paul himself in Romans chapter 7 said, I would not have come to know about sin like on a personal level if God's Word did not say, you shall not covet. Like it exposed something in him. It held up a mirror to his heart. And he realized how sinful he was. He realized his need because he had done everything on the surface that looked so good. But this command goes below the surface. So are you consumed with the idea, if only I had a new car, a new house, a new spouse, right? a new job, better friends, a bigger bank account, like then my life would be complete. I'd be finally satisfied. You see, when we covet, we believe a lie about who God is and how much He loves us and has promised to provide for us. Philip Rankin explains it this way. The truth is that God, that if God wanted us to have more right now, we would have it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the absolute sovereign ruler of the universe takes that level of precision, that level of knowledge of each one of us? If God wanted us to have more right now, we would have it. If we needed different gifts to enable us to glorify Him, He would provide them. If we were ready for the job we want, we would be put into it. If we were supposed to be in a different situation in life, we would be in it. Instead of always saying, if only this and if only that, God calls us to glorify Him to the fullest right now, whatever situation we are in. The word for this is contentment. Do you believe that? No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you believe that truth from Psalm 84.11. You see, contentment does not come naturally and contentment has to be learned. I mean, Paul tells us that in Philippians chapter 4. He said, I learned the secret of contentment. I wasn't born with it. Right? It didn't come naturally. I had to learn it. True satisfaction is not about getting more. That's what we normally think, but you've heard it from you know this pulpit many, many times that our appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Like the more we get, the fuller we are not, right? Because if we fill ourselves up with the wrong things, we end up getting more and more empty. 
Like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.5 tells of the nation of Israel's rebellion against God. And he says they walked after emptiness and became empty. Well, of course they did. That's what happens when you chase after emptiness. It does not satisfy. This constant desire for more actually causes dissatisfaction with what you do have. Like I know for me, I've, I've told Amy, I don't like to go look at houses. Like she loves to go look at houses, right? Like let's, hey, they have an open house. Let's go look. Well, let's not. Like I don't want to go look at the house. <laughs> and it's, it's not because, you know, I'm super spiritual. It's because I know my heart. And when I see other things, it begins to stir in me a dissatisfaction for what I have. Like God has blessed me so much until I see what other people have. And I'm like, God, what, what's the deal, man? Are you holding out on me? Of course, Jesus alone is the true source of lasting commitment. Like we've said before, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But everything without Jesus equals nothing. And so how can you as a Christian say you have nothing? If you have him, like he is he not the treasure that you found hidden in a field and then in your joy went and sold everything so that you might have him. And so with that said, I want to I, I would normally uh, continue to build the case, but I, I think it would be helpful for us to look at a an example, a testimony, an object lesson of someone who just like you and me struggled with coveting. Like really struggled with coveting and envy and jealousy that resulted in bitterness and somehow God worked in their life to turn their coveting into contentment. And so I'd ask you to turn to Psalm 73. I don't have slides for it, so I want you to turn there in your Bible also so that you can make notes in the margin of your Bible as uh, you see some insights in the passage of Scripture. Uh, we're going to look at the testimony of one guy named Asaph. Asaph was a worship leader. He was a Levite from the tribe of Levi, from the priestly class who worked in the tabernacle and later in the temple under King David and Solomon. And he was a worship leader. Like that was his job. Like writing songs and leading people in worship for the gathering of God's people. And he writes in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Amen. That's true. Like Asaph was paying attention in Saturday school. Right? But then he says this, But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. I mean, that's an honest assessment. He's saying, hey, listen, God is so good like you can count on His promises. Like He's good to people when they are following Him. But guess what? I wasn't following Him. Why? For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Like this is Asaph's perspective on life. As a worship leader for the nation of Israel, instead of looking up to the glory of God. He's looking down and across to those around Him and on everything they have. And as He sees the prosperity, especially of those who disregard God, He's like, what the heck? <laughs> like this is not the way it was supposed to be. Like if God is so good, why doesn't He judge these people? 
Like if God is really good and keeps His promises, why doesn't He take better care of His children and those who are obedient like me? Like this psalm is one man's story, but in a sense it's every one of our stories. Every believer who ever struggles, every believer who ever grapples with God about like why not me? Like why haven't you let my wife have a baby? Why didn't I get that promotion? Like, why am I struggling with this sickness? Why God? Why God? Why God? Like, do you ever covet the success or the happiness of other people? Like, especially even those who don't know Christ? I remember my, my pastor's wife in North Carolina confessing to my wife that she struggled with deep bitterness every time a woman in the church got pregnant because she couldn't. Like she just was honest with that. Like does comparison leave you doubting? Discouraged? Despondent? Does it make you bitter? Like comparison makes us envy the wicked when our lives don't match up with our expectations. With our hopes and dreams. Like, God, I thought by this time in life, like, my marriage would be in a better place. My kids would be at a better place. I'd have kids. Like, my career would really have taken off. I would have paid off my house. I would have a house. You know, I'd be past this sickness, whatever. Comparison makes us envy the wicked when we compare what we know about them. I'm sorry, what we know about us to what we assume about them. Like, I know everything about me, right? I know more about Bobby than anyone else knows about Bobby. Like, I know about my family, and I know about my marriage, and I know about my kids, but then I can compare myself to what I assume of other people. It's kind of like I, I, like the internet fuels this big time because I compare the reality of my life with someone else's highlight reel, with their Instagram where they're smiling kids and everybody looks good. And I don't know what kind of filter they're using, but I wish they had that in real life kind of a thing. Right? And that just creates envy in me. And often resentment in me and in you. Like we, this comparison makes us envy and covet what the wicked have when we consider only right here and right now. Like we know, guys, I hope you know this, there are short-term benefits very short-term benefits to being wicked, to being sinful. Like I've said many times, if you don't enjoy sin, then you don't know how to sin. Like you need to take a seminar or something. Okay, because sin is fun for a moment and that moment is so brief. But when we only look at people around us and take a quick snapshot of their lives in that moment of enjoyment of their sin... It's easy for us to resent God and to become bitter and be envious of the wicked. You know, that's what's happening here as Asaph looks at the world around him. He's troubled and it distracts him from his job, what he's supposed to be doing, like, like telling Israel about the glory of God. And so he begins to make observations through the eyes of a man who is coveting Everything his neighbors have. Like these are emotional. They're not rational. He says, verse 4, of the wicked. They have no struggles. 
None? Really? Like the wicked, none of them have struggles. No, that's not rational, but it's emotional. It's how he feels in this moment. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. It's like they have a perfect tan all year long. I don't know how they get it. And they all have a personal trainer and a chef. Like their lives are perfect. They are free from common burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Their pride is their necklace and they clothe themselves in violence. Like they have no shame. They're not, they don't even try to hide their sin. In fact, they put it on display. They celebrate it like they, they parade it for everyone to see. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. Like Paul says in Romans 1, they invent new ways to do evil. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay hold of heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Like they defy God and heaven and they dictate to the earth and they get away with it. Like that's what he's astonished by. Like he's seeing their lives play out and he's thinking, how are they getting away with this? I can't get away with anything. Like I get called immediately. I feel guilt immediately. This shame, shame just rushes on me immediately and they're just living this life apart from God and getting away with it. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up the waters in abundance like they drink it all in. They get all the public approval they need. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Like They're saying, hey, hey uh, Asaph, what's the point of following God? I mean, God either doesn't know what's going on or He doesn't care what's going on or He's too weak to do anything about what's going on. And then He says this, this is what the wicked are like. Once again, His observations are all about how He feels in this moment. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. And then He concludes, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, man, what a waste. Following God, what a waste. Like, am I crazy? Like, am I crazy in this job? Like, how did I even become a Levite? I was just born into this family. And so what? I can sing. Big deal. There are other people who can sing. Like, what a waste. I have held myself away from all the world has to offer, and I've got nothing in return. Like as a Christian, you've probably felt that way. Especially if you're a Christian in high school or middle school, you would have felt that way at times. Like in vain, I have. Like this tells me that Asaph had an expectation of payback from God that was unmet. And so either his expectation was wrong or his timing was wrong. He says in verse 14, all day long I've been afflicted. And every morning brings me new punishments. Like, my life stinks. I look at them and like, come on. Like, this is not what I signed on for. And all I want is a little bit of what they have. Okay, I don't have to win the lottery. I don't have to win that one billion dollars. But a million, that would be okay. Right? All I want is a little prosperity, a little acceptance, a little comfort, a little applause. See, this is what coveting does. Coveting tells me that I deserve more and I deserve better. When the reality is, what do you deserve? 
I remember reading a gospel track when I was in high school that the opening line has stuck with me to this day. It just said on the cover, thanks. And you opened it up and it said, every sinner in the world who is reading this right now ought to get on their knees and thank God because if Satan had had his way, you would have tripped getting out of bed this morning, broken your neck, and you would be in hell before breakfast. And I thought, Dang! (laughs) Okay, you have my attention. Guys, that's what we deserve, but coveting tells me I deserve better, I deserve more. Coveting drives me to compare, and that ultimately leads to bitterness. Like later on he will write in verse 21, my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. And then he makes this honest self-assessment in verse 22. I was senseless and ignorant like a brute beast before you like I was just a fool like what was I thinking where did these crazy ideas come from like I know better than this my parents taught me better than this but coveting robs us of reason and wisdom doesn't it like all of us you know men especially we know men who probably are older than you are right now who were following God, they seemed to be on the right path, and then their eyes got on something that they followed their gaze and it led them down a path of destruction. And they became like utter fools. Like they became a parable. Like a negative parable that you don't want to follow. And that's because coveting robs us of reason and wisdom. Sin makes you stupid. It just does. Verse 15, I love this. This is when he begins to turn in the right direction. He said, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Understand what's going on so far in Psalm 73 is he's having an internal dialogue. Like he's talking to himself. He's talking a little bit to God. And then he makes the statement, if I'd said any of this crap out loud, boy, that would have been bad. Like that would have been so bad. I would have betrayed your children. I would have blasphemed against God. I'm so thankful that Asaph didn't have a Twitter account. Didn't have social media. Like we just put up what we feel and hit send. We hit post. Everybody should wait at least 24 hours on anything you put on the web because chances are it's stupid. It's it's just not good stuff. And so I'm so thankful that he didn't speak too quickly. He kept his mouth shut and he began to have this dialogue with his own heart and with the Lord. In verse 16 it says, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. Like I couldn't wrap my brain around it. It wore me out just thinking about it. And here's his turning point. He says, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Hear that? He's like, I'm thinking about this. I'm wrestling with this. It's troubling, troubling me deep in my soul until I went to church. Guys, if you're struggling, go where you can find the right answers. If you're struggling, go where God has promised that He would be. In His Word and among His people. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final 
destiny. Surely you have placed them on a slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed. Completely swept away by terrors. And just as a side note, don't listen to anyone who promises that you can have your best life now. The only people who get their best life now are those who are destined for hell. This is as good as it gets. For them, this is as close as they will ever get to heaven unless they yield their lives to Christ. But for us who have, by God's grace, this is as close as you will ever get to hell. This is as bad as it gets. Like this, like like I said to the first uh, hour group, that in eternity, as we look back as Christians, all our trials and all our troubles, all our loss and our sickness, all our heartache will seem like an, like an afternoon at the DMV. <laughs> and that's it. When we experience the joys that He offers at His right hand. See, God doesn't follow your schedule. He doesn't follow mine. He gives us what we need when we need it. He knows what we can take. And He knows what will destroy us. Verse 20 of the wicked, He says, they are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Reduced to nothing as insubstantial as a dream. Like We don't usually even remember our dreams. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, and yet, and here's his perspective change, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Afterward. That word is the same root from verse 17 of the word that says final destiny. And he's saying here, listen, the change in my mind came, the change in my heart and perspective came when I understood their afterward. And when I understood their afterward, I also understood my afterward. I understood that this is as close as I'll ever get to hell, but it's as close as they'll ever get to heaven. And they're the last people I need to envy. And so he concludes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. Lord, you make heaven heaven. You make life worth it. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you have your Bible open, circle that word portion. Like for us, it's, it's neat, it's poetry. You know, it kind of follows the idea of strength and my portion. And so we see that connection. But for Asaph, I'm sure he's thinking about Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, where God, speaking to Aaron, the father of the high priest, the head of the Levite tribe, tells Aaron before they go into the promised land, hey, by the way, when your family goes in, you will have no inheritance in the land. Neither shall you have any, any portion among them. Like everybody's getting land, everybody's getting cities, not you. 
It doesn't work that way for the Levites. It doesn't work that way for Asaph. You're going into the land, but you're not getting the land. And I'm sure Aaron's like, well, wait a minute. Isn't it divided among 12 tribes? Yeah, but we're giving Joseph two. And we're giving Levi none. Why? And God tells him, because I am your portion. And I am your inheritance among the people of Israel. Like Levi, Aaron, Asaph, you don't get property. You get me. You get to be in my presence. You get to be what the rest of Israel will long for. To be in the very presence of God serving Him. And that's what Asaph is thinking about even as he writes this. He's reminded, oh wait a minute. I'm not promised land and cities and wealth and stuff. I'm promised the very presence of God. And so he concludes, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. The NAS puts it this way, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. The ultimate good in life is not stuff, health, wealth, prosperity. It's the nearness of God. Jesus is more than enough. And so just quickly, three applications of this. The cure for covetousness is contentment. If you struggle with coveting, you need to battle that by learning contentment. And you learn contentment by trusting in the sovereignty and providence of God. Jen Wilkin puts it this way, covetousness whispers that we deserve that which has been given to our neighbor. But contentment states plainly that God has given what is good. God has given everything I need at just the right time. And I can trust Him. Battle your coveting with contentment. And contentment begins with the lifting of your eyes. It did with Asaph. He lifted his eyes off his current circumstances. He lifted his eyes away from comparison with the wicked. And he focused once again on a sovereign God who had His back. Like we need to ask when we are struggling with temptation to covet, what is it about God that I don't understand in this situation? What is it about God's goodness that I'm not believing in this moment? Why isn't God enough for me right here and right now? Like the root of coveting is often distrust in God's providence. I love what Janie Ortland says about contentment. This is what she says. She says, contentment is learning to live with a sense of God's impending goodness. Like, I just love that. Like, you get this sense of someone who, whatever they're facing, whatever they're going through, whether it's a loss of a job or a loss of a loved one, some sickness or trial, there's this sense where they're just waiting and anticipating God to show up in some way that will make sense of that moment. Not necessarily a healing, not necessarily a promotion, but they're just waiting on the goodness of God. Like that's what builds contentment. And then finally, contentment is sustained by praise. 
Like that's what we see in this psalm. It begins with him saying that God's good to good people, but I'm not good. You know, life stinks. Let's move on. And it ends with the nearness of God is my good. And we need to replace I want, fill in the blank, with I am so thankful for, fill in the blank. Let me end with a quote from John Piper. In writing on this topic, he says, sin is what we do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Sin is what we do when your heart is not satisfied with God. We sin because it holds out the promise of happiness. The power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. All that God promises to be for us in Jesus stands over against what sin promises to be for us without Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we're not just talking when we think about coveting and we talk about contentment. We're not just talking about abstract ideas, pie-in-the-sky kind of things. But as we stand at this table, and as we come to this table together, we see a visible, tangible, physical demonstration of Your faithfulness and Your provision. Lord, our greatest need is not healing from cancer. It's not. Our greatest need is not more money in the bank account. It's not another kid, another car, another house. Lord, our greatest need is because of our sin, we are separated both now and for all eternity from a holy God. And we cower under His wrath that we so deserve. We should have all been in hell before breakfast. But Lord, this table reminds us that You met our greatest need on the cross. Jesus looked all the way into the past and all the way into the present and He saw all the sins of all who would trust in Him. And He took them upon Himself and bore our punishment, our wrath. He died and then three days later He rose again. And Lord, so we proclaim that death and that resurrection through the taking of these elements. And Lord, I pray that You would bless them now. Let them be true food and true drink. Let them nourish Your children this morning. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.